so a quick introduction about myself, if you guys don't already know. Um, I, I do serve at another local church in Federal Way called Anthem Church. Uh, they're actually meeting right now. We have two services going on, and so that's where you can find us on a Sunday. Um, I've been married to my wife, Julie, who's here this morning for 10 years now. This summer will be 10 years. We're in double-digit land, which is crazy. Um, we have two kids, Rachel, who's six, and James, who's two, and they're both in, at your kids' church this morning, so they were super nervous about going to a different church, but we cajoled them uh, with candy, so they are there today. Um, it's my highest honor and privilege uh, to speak and preach and teach the gospel. Um, I'm part of a teaching team at our church, and um, I've actually known your pastor, Eugene, for, uh, I was doing the math the other day, I'm not good at math, for 15 years now. Uh, we go back 15 years to a youth group back in the day, and Pastor Eugene, I don't know if you remember, but he actually uh, gave me my first preaching opportunity. He invited me to preach 15 years ago, um, and the rest is history, so um, we go way back. Um, uh, another uh, fun fact is a lot of people in that original youth group, I, I see a lot of familiar faces. Many of you are here today. Um, and a lot of people have gone on to become leaders and pastors at different churches, including our mutual friend, Dimitri Spatterell, who pastors another church in uh, Federal Way called Resurrection Church Federal Way. Um, and so God did a lot of amazing things through that group of uh, friends and uh, and young people then. I was in youth ministry for many years as well, and I would tell young people all the time is, you will be the average of your friends. So if all your friends are knuckleheads, you will probably be a knucklehead. Um, and if all your friends love Jesus, you will grow up uh, to love Jesus. And so pick your friends, choose them wisely, uh, do that, and it's paid dividends in my life uh, up until now. Uh, I love the fact that you guys are going through the sermon collection on spiritual disciplines. Our church, uh, we've actually done several sermon collections on this very topic. Um, we think it's a vital topic to talk about, especially as a young church getting our uh, figuring out how to do this, how do we do Christianity, how do we tackle uh, the gospel and live it out in our own lives. And in fact, we try to implement spiritual disciplines into every sermon that we teach and preach. It's that important to the Christian walk. And so, um, did you know that Christ, he did not call Christians, he called disciples. And disciples, they do what their master does, right? A modern equivalent is the word apprentice. Apprentices do what their master does. And they're not perfect at it, but they practice and they practice. And so that's what we're called to do. Um, and so this morning, I have the honor and privilege of speaking on the topic of simplicity or simple living. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you living simply or simply living? Come on, which one? Are you simply living or living simply? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. Um, I will begin by reading out of Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. So if you guys have your Bibles, um, you can join me. I think we, we have the text up here. You can follow along. And actually, as I read this text, would you mind standing up? Um, this is actually a practice that we started implementing at our church. And if you guys love it, you can do it next week. Um, as well, just standing for the Word of God. There's actually precedent in Scripture for this in Nehemiah and in Luke. We see people honoring the Word of God, and so we're just going to do that as I read so you can follow along. All right. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. He's not talking about weight, but he might be, right? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than these? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to open up in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for today. God, I pray for the congregation here. I pray for Mercy Church, Lord. Lord, would your Holy Spirit do a work this morning through the preaching and teaching of your word, God. May the soils of our hearts be receptive to receive, God, that we would not just hear the word and forget it, God, but do the word. Implement it into our daily lives, beginning today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Friday. Every day, God, may we, may we be dis- disciples of your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. 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 There's one phrase that I could tell my wife um, that will bring our conversation from a two to a ten in zero seconds flat. Right, One word that is a trigger word, and I, I guarantee you it's not just her trigger word, it's probably a trigger word for a lot of you. Do you know what that word is? That word is relax. Relax. Right? Why does that word elicit such a crazy response? Right? Well, it's probably because the person that's doing the talking, right, they're, they're fired up. They're excited. They're, they're, they're telling you something. They're either angry or sad or mad. They have something they want to tell you. And the other person on the receiving end is typically not there emotionally, right, or en- energetically. They're just not there. And so what happens is this word respond, or this word calm down or relax or chill out, right, it has the effect of highlighting the disparity between these two people, and uh, who's had to say the word relax recently or ever to your significant other, or your friend? Yep. Who's had to hear the word relax? All right. Uh, who's won? Who won? Yep. Yep. I always lose. Um, and I don't know why I keep playing that game, but it's, uh, it's not a fun game. Um, now, let me set the scene for the text that we just read in Matthew a couple minutes ago when Jesus essentially told the crowds, to relax and take it easy and stop worrying. Jesus was in the middle of a marathon sermon that probably lasted from sunup to sundown that scholars have dubbed the Sermon 
on the mount. And Jesus was a popular guy. He attracted lots of crowds. And, and these crowds, they weren't necessarily the, the elite of society. They weren't the, the nobles and the 1%, right? They were the bottom of the barrel. They were the working class. They were the blue-collared people that Jesus attracted to himself. They were agrarian farmers and fishers. Right? Think of the truck drivers in Canada right now protesting, right? They're protesting government mandates and uh, taxes, right? And not a lot has changed in 2,000 years, right? There's still protests going on. And so these are the people that Jesus is reaching. These are the people that Jesus is attracting to himself, the working class, the people who have blue collars and are in the ditches and are literally fighting for survival. So the thing that Jesus was telling them to do was actually completely counterintuitive. And it seemed a little preposterous to the crowds to hear the words from this Messiah. Jesus was basically telling them to relax and calm down and take a chill pill when the majority of his congregation was actually thinking about where their next meal was going to come from. This was their daily reality. They were always consumed with, what am I going to eat tonight? What am I going to eat tomorrow? If I don't go fishing today, my kids will go hungry. It wasn't just an afterthought. It literally consumed their lives. I can imagine a mother with a two-year-old with an, with an outfit that's outgrown the child, right? And she's literally thinking about, I need a new outfit for little Jimmy here, right? Because he's outgrown his outfit. I need to find something to wear. And so it's, it's not just a cute saying that we just read that Jesus was telling people to relax. It actually was a little bit offensive, to the crowd. I can imagine them thinking, who is this guy? Doesn't he know that I, I don't have a 401k? I don't have a savings account? I don't have anything put together? What do you mean? Relax and don't worry about it. And Jesus' teaching probably sounded like a cruel joke to many. Let me contextualize the scene for us even more by making it even more stark. Imagine you getting on an airplane this afternoon and flying down to one of the poorest countries on earth, right? India. And you go down to the slums where there are children literally dying of starvation on the streets, right? And you show up and you set up your pulpit uh, like Jesus did if he had one, right? And then you repeat the words that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount to literally the poorest of the poor. And you say, hey, everybody, stop worrying about what you're going to eat. In fact, just relax. And if you don't relax, you, ha- you don't have faith. Right? That is the scene. That is what is happening here today. And it sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds harsh to hear these words from Jesus to people who are actually living in anxiety and living in fear and living in trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And some of you here today are beginning to feel a little uncomfortable, right? Is this the same Jesus that we serve? The Jesus who is making these statements Jesus' teaching was like throwing a glass of cold water into the face of someone who, who's outside and cold, right? It's, it feels off. It feels uh, disgraceful. However, Jesus wasn't being facetious. Jesus wasn't being flippant. Jesus wasn't being mean-spirited. He wasn't even talking in riddles. He actually meant what he said. He actually meant it. Jesus' teaching is a hard pill 
for us to swallow even today in our modern day because even in our modern world, it seems contrary to our life experience. A few years ago, there was a guy named A.H. Maslow. He proposed a pyramid motivational model for actualization and transcendence, right? He published his paper called A Theory of Human Motivation in the journal Psychological Review, which is uh, commonly referred to as Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. If you've taken Psychology 101, you've probably heard this explained, right? And he basically said the opposite of what Jesus was saying. He said, don't focus on the transcendent things first. First, focus on the material needs. Focus on your basic needs, food water shelter your safety needs your social needs and your esteem needs and then and only then when you have everything else figured out and satisfied then you can achieve transcendence and you could be spiritual and you could start thinking about things other than yourself maslow was completely wrong right and and the proof is our western civilization the modern world We literally have everything we need, and yet we are the most depressed, anxious, uh, pill-addicted generation to ever have walked the planet, right? We should be, according to Maslow, we've got all our basic needs checked off, and yet we're still struggling, we're still worried, we're still trying to figure out what to do with our lives. We live in the richest nation in the history of the world, and In fact, we live in the richest region of the richest nation of the world, right? Western Washington is home to two of the richest people on earth, right? Right now, the basic level of happiness for our region, Western Washington, right? Right here in Kent and Renton, this area, King County, um, in order to be happy, you need a minimum of a six-figure salary, Right? You need a $1,000 smartphone in your pocket. You need high-speed internet. You need 17 subscriptions to everything. So you can watch all the shows that your coworkers are talking about. Right, This show and that show and this show. You need everything in order to be happy. And the list goes on and on. So the seemingly crazy thing that Jesus was saying to poor people, maybe he was on to something. Maybe he knew something that we didn't know or don't know or don't take for granted. Jesus' understanding of the human condition was and is unparalleled and unrivaled. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus was actually properly diagnosing the true condition of our deprived existence by prioritizing the spiritual above the material. People are first and foremost souls who have a body, not bodies that have a soul. Jesus prioritized and majored in the major things, our souls, and with that, our spiritual standing before God, our Creator. As materially disadvantaged as his audience appeared, it didn't compare to their spiritual disadvantage, their sin that separated from God their Father. Jesus understood that if he focused his teaching on secondary issues, right? Secondary things like material needs and food and shelter, health care and welfare, 
then that would become the primary reason why people would follow him. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 26, we see Jesus calling out people for following him for this very reason. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Jesus is more concerned about your eternal standing before God than your light momentary affliction, as hard and difficult as it may seem to you in the moment. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world, right, but loses his soul? Let's now turn our attention to what Jesus actually meant when he said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. No strings attached. Right? Speaking of strings, uh, who here has ever seen or heard of Pinocchio? Right? A lot of you, many of you. Um, the Walt Disney version, I think, is actually a poor retelling of the story. I don't think they do uh, a good enough job. Here's, here's a little shot that we're going to talk about here. Um, there's actually a better version that I think is out. It's uh, on Amazon. It's an Italian version that actually tells the actual story. Um, and the original story is an old Italian fairy tale that was written in 1883 uh, by a guy named Carlo Collodi living in Florence, Tuscany. And so the story begins with Geppetto. This is Geppetto here. He's a poor, childless, poor carpenter who wishes on a star that his creation, a wooden boy puppet named Pinocchio, would come to life. And when we watch the cartoon, we think it's cute that he wishes on a star. We just watch it and think it's normal. And then we sing the song and we go on and, and right? But what does it mean? What does it mean? What is the significance of wishing on a star? And as it turns out, a star is a deep symbol and metaphor that taps into the very core of humanity. What is a star? A star, it's, it's the highest otherworldly light in an otherwise dark world, a sea of darkness. To look at a star, you must first raise your eyes above the horizon and look up and pay attention to something above your earthly existence in the mundane things of life. It's the same reason we call certain people stars, right? Because they've reached what seems to be the pinnacle of their success, the pinnacles of their career, socially, economically, politically, right? So when Geppetto is wishing on a star, he's aiming his life, he's aiming his goal, his life. He's simplifying it down to a single point in the sky. At something that's bigger and better than himself. Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, he's a professor, clinician, best-selling author. Um, he said in a recent lecture, actually referencing the same uh, passage in Matthew that we just read, he says, there is no more effective way of operating in the world than to conceptualize the highest good that you can and then strive to attain it. There's no practical pathway to that kind of success that you could have it if you actually knew what success was. Dr. Peterson then went on to define the highest possible good as God himself, and actually the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus himself. In fact, it is written into the DNA in the hearts of men to look up and worship something. 
right? We find pyramids from Asia to Africa to South America. We see humans throughout the history of our existence looking up and trying to attain something that's bigger and better than than ourselves. And yet we keep falling short. And falling short or missing the mark is actually the classic definition of the word sin. It's to miss the mark, to hit something other than the highest possible good, which is God. The psalmist echoed the same sentiment in Psalm chapter 121, verse 1. He says, I look up to the mountains, right? The psalmist, he's raising his eyes above his earthly existence, above the mundane things of his life, above his worries and his stresses. And he says, I look up at the mountains, right? He picked the highest point that he could see. He saw a mountain, Mount Rainier, right there. And then he says, does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The psalmist was right. You can't just look at the highest possible thing that you can imagine. You have to look higher at the thing, the person himself who created everything that we can see. And he says, start there. Every religion, every creed, every culture doesn't look, if it doesn't look up above creation onto the creator, it is an error and it is missing the mark. So when Jesus calls us to seek first, to look up, to pay attention to, and to aim your life at a singular point, he's referring to God the Father, God himself whose name is Yahweh, and everything and everyone else falls drastically short of that highest possible good. So when you orient your life to focus on the mundane things of life, like the people in Jesus' day and age, and unfortunately our day and age, and we keep our eyes down and we look at the things we think we need, we are doing the opposite. And no wonder we've got so much anxiety, right? Because we're so concentrated on the here and now. Now, before we dive deeper into the spiritual discipline of simplicity and how to practically implement it into our daily walk, I want to take a short detour and actually talk about uh, and place it in the, in the context of spiritual disciplines that you guys have been studying, right? You guys have been on a journey, prayer, generosity, all these different topics. So I want to position this within spiritual disciplines. What are spiritual disciplines? So first, I want to define the term. What is a spiritual discipline? I'll borrow a phrase from uh, Professor Don uh, Whitney. He's uh, a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He wrote, spiritual disciplines are things you do. They are not character qualities. They are not graces. They are not the fruit of the Spirit. They are things you do. Right? And unfortunately, in our day and age, people have believed the lie that the only thing one needs to do in order to be saved is believe. Right? And that's partially true. Yes, of course, we cannot save ourselves, but our faith in Christ does not cause us, if it does not cause us to obey Him and to do something, then we've missed the mark entirely. We've missed the point. Disciples who do what Jesus did by obeying Him are demonstrating their faith because as James wrote, faith without works is dead. And James goes on to say in chapter 2 verse 9, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. To believe only is to have a demonic level of faith. 
man, and we don't want that level of faith, right? We don't want to just believe. We want to have it compel us to live our lives differently. A quick history lesson. I'm a history buff. I I graduated with a history degree, and so I'm going to give you guys a brief bit of history here in terms of spiritual disciplines in the church, where they were, how they were transformed, and where we are today. And then we'll dive into specifically this discipline of simplicity. Over the course of Christianity, there has been a tug of war between faith versus works. And and some parts of Christianity have emphasized the faith over the works, when in reality, both are needed. Both are needed. If, If I only told my wife that I loved her, but never did anything about it, right? My, my love would be worthless. I would not be married here today if I only told her I loved her without actually proving it with my life, right? My sacrifice and everything and vice versa. Um, and so in early Christianity, when Christians were being persecuted, right? They perfected spiritual disciplines as modeled by Jesus. They were led by a group of of uh, ministers uh, referred to as the Desert Fathers. Uh, this included people like St. Augustine, St. Ignatius, St. Basil, right? The su- superheroes of the early faith. And during this time, the church developed and perfected these spiritual disciplines, and they wrote extensively on the topic. In fact, um, s- later on, they compiled all of their works into a single collection called the Philokalia. Um, it's thousands of pages long. Um, I don't uh, recommend reading through it, but there's a shorter version called A Beginner's Introduction to the Philokalia that I highly recommend. It's been a tremendous blessing to me, and it just does an overview of the spiritual disciplines that the early church fathers did and practiced and led the church early on. Later on, um, Emperor Constantine, right, he, he converted to Christianity. He made it the official state religion in 312, and then the church changed drastically. It went from a church that was led by discipleship, that was marked by discipleship, how to live in the world but not of the world, and everybody was called to discipleship. After uh, Christianity became the official state religion, the church was now called to convert pagans for political reasons, right? They were, they were agents of the state meant to unite the Holy Roman Empire under a single ruler. The focus of the church shifted from making disciples who did what Jesus did to making nominal Christians or people who just had Christianity as their title. And instead of having to profess their faith and suffer consequences, right? They professed their faith and they were left alone. And paganism began to infiltrate into the church. And the Catholic church, as it stood and operated at the center of Christendom, it began to morph into something that the early church would not recognize. It morphed into a different entity altogether, And this is when the monastic movement took off, right? Where a few selected qualified saints and monks would actually pick up the burden and actually do what Jesus called them to do, to be disciples, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and to follow him. 
And this, unfortunately, had the tragic effect of creating a two-tiered Christianity. The professional career Christians, the, the priests and the nuns and the monks, and then the nominal Christians, right? Those normal peasants and politicians who were given free reign to do whatever they wanted as long as they came to church on Sunday and confessed their sins. And this split developed in Christianity up until the year 1517, a monk by the name of Martin Luther came on the scene and he challenged the core essence of what the church was doing. And he wanted to democratize discipleship in what he coined, in what he referred to as the priesthood of all believers. We were all called to discipleship. Unfortunately, today, in our day and age, we find ourselves once again at the crossroads where the emphasis has shifted from, uh, to belief rather than action and works to a repeat-after-me confession, right? We saw in the 50s people um, attend massive crusades and repeat prayers after the evangelist, and then they went home and their lives didn't change. And years would go by, and apparently we were a Christian nation full of Christians, but discipleship was not keeping up with the trends. Protestants who had once rejected the Catholic Church's centralized model and monopoly of discipleship relegated to the professional monks and priests, we've once again reverted to that mode of Christianity, where many people believe that the senior pastor is the professional Christian. He is the one who's supposed to actually pray and live a simple life and, and be generous and do these things, right? And we relegate those responsibilities to the pastor and his wife and the leadership team. And that's not what Jesus called us to because that is not the full gospel. And thank God for churches like Mercy Church, right? You guys are going through this series. You're learning about spiritual disciplines, right? It's not, just, it's not enough to just believe. You have to act on it. It has to infiltrate your daily life. Faith without works or spiritual disciplines is no faith at all. Now let's tie all of this together and zero in on the spiritual discipline and practice of simplicity, Simplicity, a life aimed singularly at the highest good. Not a star, not a mountain, but God himself, God the Father. Many of us have an idealized vision in our heads of what a simple life is supposed to look like, right? Some of us picture a homestead in Alaska uh, where you have to hunt your own protein or raise it, right? That is the simple life that God probably has called us to. Or others of us, like myself, I picture an ocean cottage, right? On the beach with no Wi-Fi access, just living the simple life, barefoot on the beach, loving Jesus on the shores, um, getting vitamin D uh, boosters, right? And others still imagine uh, these villages, Amish, Amish villages in Pennsylvania, right? That is the simple life. The life where they've excluded all um, modern technology. They don't ride cars. They don't have Wi-Fi. They don't have cell phones. They just have barns and cows and farms, and they're happy. That is the simple life. But, what, but is that what Jesus meant? Did he call us to move to Alaska or to Pennsylvania, or some beach somewhere. Maybe, but I don't think necessarily. 
Not necessarily, because we as humans, we have a gravitational pull that keeps propelling us to the physical and temporal aspects of life, while Jesus' entire mission was spiritual in nature. The disciples kept wanting to anoint Jesus as king and make him the physical and actual ruler over Jerusalem and over Israel. All the while, Jesus was more interested in building a kingdom that had no end. Jesus wanted to extend the kingdom beyond first century Palestine. He was thinking about you 2,000 years later. Jesus was spiritual. Simple living isn't determined by how much money you have or don't have. It's the state or position of your heart. You could be Amish, but if your heart is consumed by anxiety that, that your neighbor, Jedediah or Ezekiel, right, they have bigger barns than you, right, and all of a sudden you're, you're feeling anxious, man, I got to get it together, right? You might have a form of godliness, a form of simplicity, but you're actually denying the power that has the power to change you. Um, if you're a businesswoman or a businessman, right, and how do you, let me back up, how, how can you tell if you're living a simple life or not. So I'm just going to go through a few examples here, right? If, if you're a businessman or woman, do you immediately, when you wake up, cut open your email and start checking your emails and start getting right at it, right? If you're a mom or a dad, do you immediately go about planning your day, prepping your meals, changing diapers, trying to figure out who's carpooling the kids to school? If you're a student, do you immediately, when you wake up, start stressing about your midterms, your finals? Uh, I got a test coming up. Where does your heart go? And if I'm, I'm not disciplined in the moment that I wake up and start brushing my teeth, if I don't start focusing and thinking first about the kingdom of God, God, his presence, the Father, I fail. I fail to live a simple life. My first instinct is always to grab my phone and play a, a round of Wordle, right? There's a new word out today. I got to get on it and then share my score with the world. Right? And then I grab my email and I just start putting out the fires. Okay, I got to reply to that person and this person. Oh, I got to take the kids to school. Oh, they need breakfast. I got to heat up the milk. Right? And all of a sudden, I could go 24 hours without thinking or acknowledging God once. I'm just like the people that are thinking about their existence. I haven't lifted up my eyes above my situation. Many Christians, they go an entire week without thinking or acknowledging Jesus and considering the cross and God their Father, right? They go their whole week without thinking about God, and then on Sunday, they're like, oh yeah, we're going to church today. Let's think about God. The question isn't, and, and so by doing that, many of us might get the mindset, and what I'm not trying to teach or promote here is just doing things, right, to be, to be accepted by God. That's not what I'm going after. The question isn't, what you're doing for Jesus, it's who you're becoming, right? And your actions are building the character of your life one decision of, at a time. Jesus isn't concerned about what you're doing for him much more than who you're becoming. Too many of us are concerned or consumed with the wrong gospel, right? The gospel of the American dream. This is the air that we breathe in, in the Western world. We're so busy chasing things, thrills, toys, that we forget that the, the one who gives us breath. Did you ever stop and consider that maybe the plan you have to become a millionaire by the time you're 40 and retire at, at 45 might actually end up killing you and destroying your family? Right? Because your teenage kids, they don't need 
you necessarily, when they're teenagers, they needed you when they were two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, right? The years that you were focused, heads, head down on grinding it out, becoming someone, then becoming who Jesus called you to be, a good father, a good mother, a good student who exemplifies and exudes the love of Christ wherever they go. John Mark Comer, he's uh, the former pastor at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. Um, In his bestseller, A Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he says, "The the noise of the modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God, drowning out the one input we need most. Um, another friend I went to high school with, um, he be- went on to become a famous YouTube celebrity, um, wrote many uh, New York Times bestseller books. His name is Jefferson Bethke. Um, he recently wrote a book called To Hell with Hustle. That's a cool title, right? To Hell with Hustle. And in one of the chapters, he poses the following rhetorical questions. What if God doesn't want me to do big things for him? Like at all? What if he just wants me to talk to him and to know him and live an ordinary life where I love him and my neighbors well? I'll let that sink in for a moment. It's not that God wants to hold stuff back from you. It's that he knows the things that will truly satisfy your soul. Do you remember when you were in elementary school and you couldn't wait until you went to middle school, right? And then you're in middle school and you can't wait until you're in high school and then in college and then you want to get married and then you want to have kids and then the kids move out and you're like, you've lost your identity. You're like, who am I, right? Who have I become? If that's your life, if you're always just looking for that next thing, that next thing to satisfy, you've missed the mark because you weren't aiming high enough. You're focused on the mountain. When God said, hey, look above the mountain. Focus on me. I I created the mountain. And it's no wonder we're burnt out, depressed, stressed, worried, and addicted to anxiety medication. So what can I practically do to live a simple life like Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Because I have three things that I think each and every one of us can implement Um, into our daily lives. I have these uh, three things here. I'm going to go over all of them uh, from the top, and then we'll spend just a moment on each of these. Number one is we need to simplify our schedule. Number two is simplify your space, and then simplify your spending, ladies and gentlemen. I know some of you guys spend more than the ladies. Simplify your spending. Okay, let's talk about simplifying your schedule. I hate the word busy, right? The word busy just rubs me the wrong way. If you're living a busy life and you're busy, you're too busy for church, you're too busy to sign up for Habitat for Humanity, you're too busy to come early and set up a sign, you're just busy, man, do you know Jesus was never busy? Jesus was never in a hurry. Jesus was never running from one thing to another, putting out fires. Even when his best friend was sick and dying, Jesus was like, all right. And then he finished what he was doing, and then he went back three days later. He was never busy. Jesus was always deliberate and intentional. I referenced the book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. That book messed me up. 
right? If, if there's one book you're, you want to read this year apart from the Bible, pick, pick that up, read it. It's on Audible. It's everywhere you can find a book. Um, it really gave me practical tips and tricks of how to simplify my life practically, my schedule. Um, simplify, uh, dedicating the first day of your week to going to church. That's one way to simplify your schedule. And obviously I'm preaching to the choir. With that one, you're all here. Nice job. The next one is let's dedicate the first hour of our days to God, right? When you wake up, if you wake up and you're just busy and you're in it and you're in life, Man, you got to wake up earlier so that you can ramp up, you can focus on God, and then go about the business of the day. And if you can't wake up early, go to, if you can't wake up early, go to bed early. And if you can't do that because you're busy distracting yourselves, well, stop distracting yourselves, right? There's a domino effect. We have to simplify our schedules. We have to major in the majors and minor in the minors. Uh, set limits on your phones for social media use. Let's simplify our schedule. What is distracting us? Let's set limits on it. I recently put a limit on my phone for social media used to 15 minutes a day, all platforms. Man, there's so many times I just ignore that limit, right? But we got to be disciplined with those things. In the last two years, right, when COVID hit and all of our schedules got screwed up, everyone's working from home, no one's going outside, everything just feels like it's upside down. 2020 was actually the most disciplined year I've had in my life. I simplified my schedule down to just the things that mattered. I'm going to focus on A, B, and C, seeking God, loving my family, and then I'll worry about going to the gym, reading books, doing everything else, right? And what happened? In the last two years, I lost 50 pounds, right? Before I, I couldn't, I didn't have time to go to the gym. And all of a sudden, man, I, I have time to exercise. I, re- I hadn't read a book since college, right? I've read snippets here and there, but I hadn't read a physical book since college 15 years ago, right? But since, when I really simplified my schedule, all of a sudden, the last two years, I've read over 150 books. Where, where did you get that time? simplifying your schedule. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you, right? My relationship with my wife has never been better. In the past, it's we're always fighting like cats and dogs and we're trying to figure stuff out. We're always stressed and worried and thinking about it. But when you simplify it down to let's focus on God and everything else will take care of itself, it actually works. Number two, let's simplify our space. Um, My mom used to say a cluttered room is a cluttered mind right? Whose mom ever said that? You guys have a good mom, right? Countless studies are showing that a cluttered life increases stress. I ran across uh, an article in the New York Times a couple years ago called The Unbearable Heaviness of Clutter. A cluttered home can be a stressful home, researchers are learning. No, duh. My mom could have told you that, right? Let's clean up our space, clean up our desktops, clean up our, our phones. Let's clean up the space that we inhabit. Jesus wasn't owned by anyone or anything. He had gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Jesus wasn't necessarily poor, but those things didn't own him. They were just resources for him to focus on the main thing, which was spending time with his father. He said, I and the father are one. And three, simplify your spending. Your, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. We know that. Eugene taught on generosity and giving a few weeks ago. Um, did you know that you can't be generous 
if you're in debt up to your eyeballs, right? If you've got credit card debt and car payments and a mortgage and everything, you can't be generous because you're, you're indebted, you're enslaved to your debtor, Scripture tells us. And so the sad reality is many Americans are in debt. We, we can't be generous. We can't do things we want. In fact, we want it now, and so we spend it, and then we can't pay for it, and then we're in the cycle of hurt. And so I, practically speaking, how do we simplify um, your spending? I recommend going through Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University course. That will teach you how to get rid of debt and live a debt-free life. And when, only when you're in debt, when you're debt-free, can you be generous and then you can spend on things that matter? Um, our giving, I, my wife and I, we've been Christians our whole lives. We've grown up in the church and giving and being generous has always been a touchy subject, right? Because we're in debt. I got to pay off the credit card. I got to do this. And not until we fully got rid of all of that. Now we're giving through the roof. It's like, where, where did this come from? It's by focusing and simplifying our spending on things we need, not things we want. And God will give you what you need and the things you want. Now, that's all very interesting, Eugene, but how do I know that it will actually work for me? Well, it's one thing for me to describe a piece of chocolate cake for you, right? How good it is, how moist it is, how amazing it is, but it's another thing for you to just do it and try it and eat it on your own. The psalmist wrote, taste and see that the Lord is good because that's the only way to know truth. You can't take my word for it. And so we live in an age of abundance. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 7, Moses was warning Israel about going into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 7, he says, for the Lord your God is bringing you to a land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains, springs, flowing out of the valleys and hills, out of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will uh, eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills you can dig copper, right? He's saying all of these things are in here. A modern translation could read, for the Lord your God has brought you into a good land, a land of Amazon, right? A land of Walmart, a land of Costco, of Olive Garden, of Nordstrom, of Tesla, of Starbucks. But he goes on to say, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. Would you stand up? I believe the Holy Spirit is stirring us to action this morning. Do you know God cares about you more than you care about yourself? Do you trust that God the Father will deliver on his promise to give you everything you need? Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian and existential philosopher, he coined the term leap of faith to describe the moment when a person is faced with the choice that cannot be justified rationally. You just have to leap into it. You just have to trust that God will take care of you. So this morning as I close in prayers, let's leap forward into God by trusting him and doing what he's called us to do. Amen? Let's pray.